Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den fantastiske fransk-marokkanske forfatter Leila Slimani, der for nogle år siden blev verdensberømt, da hun udgav kriminalromanen Vuggesang, som hun modtog den fineste franske litteraturpris, Goncourt-prisen for, og som blev oversat til mere end 25 forskellige sprog. Da Slimani efterfølgende skulle på en verdensturné for at præsentere bogen i forskellige lande, fik hun hele tiden det samme spørgsmål. Var hun fransk eller var hun marokkansk? Og hun var træt af at svare på det spørgsmål, for der findes ikke noget enkelt svar på det. Den første halvdel af sit liv har hun boet i Marokko. Den anden halvdel af sit liv har hun boet i Frankrig. Hendes bedstemor var en kvinde fra Alsace, der foretog det stærkt utraditionelle skridt dengang at flytte fra Frankrig til Marokko. Hendes bedstefar var en marokkansk mand, som havde været i krig for Frankrig i 2. verdenskrig og repræsenterede den franske hær, dengang Marokko stadigvæk var en fransk koloni. Så det franske og marokkanske var altid blandet sammen for Leila Slimani. Hun var altid begge dele. Og hun mener ikke, at man skal anskue forholdet mellem Marokko og Frankrig som et enten eller. Det er ikke sådan, siger hun, at man bare skal se franskmændene som de onde hvide kolonialister, der tog ned og besatte og ødelagde marokkanerne. Og som marokkanerne nu skal frigøre sig fra ultimativt for at kunne blive sig selv. Det er heller ikke sådan, at man skal overtage fransk kultur for at kunne realisere sig selv i Marokko. Det er ikke et enten eller. Det er ikke en hård kamp. Og hvis man forstår det... Hvis man forstår, at forholdet mellem Frankrig og Marokko snarere end at være et forhold mellem de gode og de onde, er et ægteskab. Et ægteskab, hvor man har mishandlet hinanden og haft ekstremt stærke følelser med hinanden, hvor man har haft voldsomme konflikter, men hvor man også altid hører sammen og er knyttet sammen af nogle bånd, som man ikke kan bryde, fordi man har fået børn sammen. Så får man også en forståelse for, hvorfor mange af de kampe, vi går med, er langt mere komplekse, end vi sædvanligvis anerkender, når vi taler om det. Og det er faktisk det, der er anlæggende i Leila Slimanis nye bog, De Andres Land, som er første del af en trilogi om hendes egen familiehistorie. Det er at fortælle hendes egen families historie gennem tre generationer, men derigennem også at fortælle om hele frihedskrigen i Marokko, uafhængighedskampen, og vise, hvorfor det faktisk var de færreste, der var enten franskmand eller marokkanere, hvorfor de fleste faktisk var begge dele, på den ene eller på den anden måde. Og hvorfor en snak om kolonialisme, hvor man skal tage stilling for det ene eller det andet, hvor man tror, det er mellem de gode og de den altid vil tage fejl. Det er den ene del af fortællingen. Den anden del af fortællingen er, at antikolonialismen, frigørelsen fra de vestlige kolonimagter, var altid mændenes historie. De store frigørelseshelte var mænd. Og de samme mænd, som ville kæmpe for deres nationale frihed, var ikke lige så besatte af at kæmpe for deres koners frigørelse. Tværtimod. Og det er i spillet mellem kvindernes frigørelse og nationernes frigørelse, og betingelserne for, at folk både kan bestemme over deres eget land, og kvinder kan komme til at bestemme over deres eget liv, at hele dramaet i Leila Slimanis trilogi finder sted. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Copenhagen and especially good evening to you Leila Slimani who is with us from Paris. Hello. And thank you so much for taking your time. Det er også en samtale der kommer til at handle om hvordan vi skal forstå kolonialisme, hvorfor kolonialisme altid også var et seksuelt anlæggende hvordan vi skal forstå forholdet mellem kvindefrigørelse og national selvstændighed, 
Og hvad det vil sige at være forfatter i dag, med den baggrund, som hun har. For er der nogen, der ved, at forholdet mellem Frankrig og Marokko er som et ægteskab, så er det Lille Lasslimani selv. Hun er nemlig et barn af dem. I just want to ask you first, what is the background of this project? Oh, you know, it's a very complex story. At the, at the beginning, uh, there is the fact that I've always known that I was going to write one day about my family because I was uh, fascinated, especially by the couple of my, my grandparents. Each time I was telling the story of my grandmother, the young Alsacienne, marrying a, a soldier from the colonial army, all my friends would say, oh, wow, that's a novel. You should write this novel. So I was convinced that I had something really strong and really, yeah, really interesting to, to tell. And when I told my, my publisher that I wanted to write this story, he said, oh, no. I think you're too young. You're not ready for that. I don't really believe in that, this love story. He was really not uh, yeah, convinced by my idea. So I abandoned it and I wrote Lullaby and other stuff. And um, after the big tour, after the Prix Goncourt, I, I went all over the world in like 20, 25 countries. I spent a lot of time in airports, in hotels, in train station, and a lot of time alone. And I was writing on a notebook and the, the only scenes that came to me were the souvenirs from my, my family. And also the fact that all the time people were asking me, journalists were asking me about my identity. Mm-hmm. Who are you? Are you French? Are you Moroccan? When I was in, in France, people was always asking me about my origin as a Moroccan. When I was in the Arab country, people would say that I was too much influenced by the West. and. Um, i felt it was very difficult to to define myself and to explain to people that i come from a very complex background a complex history that made it possible for a woman like me to exist so i think that's why i wanted to write that maybe to understand myself where i come from and to try also to explain the story of all those people who come from colonized country, from uh, mixed-race couples and family, from family that are not easy to define and who feel something sometimes very sad not being able to define themselves. And I think one of the many very good aspects about the book is that we need, I think we need to continue to have a public discourse about colonization. It's not a thing of the past. It's still shaping our societies and it's, you know, this whole immigrant issue and everything is related to colonialism. But it's also very hard to have a moralized discourse about because like the two protagonists in your story, Matilda, who's the French lady from, from Alsace and her husband, uh, Amine, uh, who come from Morocco, but fights in the French army. I think they're extraordinary characters, but I think they're mixed loyalties are are not just unique. And I think that most people have these mixed uh, loyalties. How much were you thinking that you wanted to write a story also about colonialism? Yeah, of course I wanted to write about colonialism. And I thought that maybe fiction, literature was the best way to uh, deal with this topic. Because if you look at um, history books, 
the way they talk about colonialism, or if you hear uh, the, the way politicians, especially in France, talk about colonialism, there is always this idea of good people and bad people, of the good, of the right and the, the, the evil, and this idea of dividing people. And in, in history book, we always speak about the collective destiny of a nation. We don't speak about individuals, but in fiction, in novels, in literature, we only speak about individuals, about very singular souls. And you have the time to explore the personality, the psychology of a, of a soul, and to understand that everything is always more complex than what is written in the history books. And that some people, sometimes, of course, you can be live in a colonized country like Amin, and sometimes you want to fight against colonization, but you have some friends also who are French. You are yourself married to a French woman. Life is complex and um, the present is complex. That's also something I wanted to show. Those people, for them, colonization is the present. It's the day-to-day -day life. And so it's very confusing. It's full of ambiguity. And as we do, we don't understand our present. You don't, I don't. We don't understand everything that's happening uh, around us. And maybe in 30 or 40 years, people will say, oh, my God, how could they act like this? How could they react like this to ecology, to the war in Ukraine or whatever? But today we do as we can. We do the best we can, but we don't know. We don't understand. And that's how I wanted to write it. I wanted to be really in the present of my character and try to show that for them, colonialism is just life, it's just the present of their life. And uh, it's very confusing, full of ambiguity. There's another, and I think that may be just my limitation, but I think most of the anti-colonial literature I've been reading was written by men. And I always heard that, you know, the heroes of the anti-colonial struggles, they were very often men. And that's, I would say it's actually, it's, it's Absolutely the same with the left in Denmark. It's not a, it's not just an anti-colonial thing, but we had many public liberators who were all men and who were not in favor of, of, of their own wives' liberation. This is a very strong tension in your book between the liberation of women and the struggle for national independence. Was it important for you to write this from a female perspective? I know you change the viewpoints all the time in the book, which is part of what makes it a clever book, but but we also get a sense of Matilda, her, her destiny. Yes, of course, uh, you're absolutely right. I think that the women are the main characters of this book, and they will be the main characters of the, the whole trilogy. Because to be totally honest, in my own life, women have always been the main character. They have always been the heroes, and the men have always been the victims. That's something you will discover in the second part and the, and the third part. And so when I decided to write the first part about colonialism, and I wanted, as you said before, to write a political book, to write a historical book, and usually when you write this kind of book, the hero is a man, because this man goes to war, this man goes to riots, and he fights, and he kills, or he is killed. But I wanted to show that women also fight in another way, but they fight all the time. It's not because they don't wear uniforms and they don't have a gun that they don't fight. The title of the first part is War, War, War. And for women, war is everywhere. This is this very famous sentence of Scarlett O'Hara, 
the beginning of Gone with the Wind, when she said, war, 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 this is this idea that women don't understand war, that women are so, you know, futile, so stupid, that they are only focused on uh, having parties and wearing beautiful dresses. And of course, it's not true. And that's something I wanted to show in this book, that women maybe are not outside fighting in uniform, but are fighting all the time in the house. And they are fighting for their emancipation and fighting for their rights. But also, I wanted to show the paradox, the fact that those men, the nationalists at that time, they are going out in the streets shouting, we want freedom, we want independence, we want emancipation. But when they go back home, they don't listen to the women saying, we want freedom, we want independence, we want emancipation. So that freedom is for them, for men only and not for their sister, their wife, their mother, or their daughter. And that's also this paradox and hypocrisy. You know, Franz Fanon, he writes about uh, people from, I think it's from Martinique or maybe from Northern Africa, but he writes about when they come to France, the first thing they want to do is they want to penetrate a white woman. That That's kind of, they have been humiliated where they came from. And when they come to the metropole, And I, I should say, Franz Fanon is a hero of mine, so I'm not saying anything <laughs> ne negative about him. But that's when I realized that I didn't think of that before, that there was always also a sexual component to colonialism. Of course. And I wrote a lot about that. And it's something that fascinates me. Uh, I wrote a book with um, other writers and other historians called Sex, uh, Race and Colonialism, because colonialism is about sex. This is a sexual enterprise. When you read books or letters from people who were the colonialists, they, they always say that they are going to penetrate a territory. They are going to penetrate Africa or to penetrate Asia. But the idea is that they are also going to penetrate a body, the body of the, of the women, of the natives. And you know, if you look at, at the iconography of colonialism at that time, um, Africa is always embodied by a woman with the naked breast, and so is Asia, and so it's the same for the, for the Maghreb, for Morocco or Algeria, it's the woman we call the Mouker, and she's half naked, but at the same time, she has the veil. So colonialism is also about a sexual fantasy, a sexual enterprise, the idea that the white man in the West is going to live a very bourgeois life, very conform life, very moral life with his wife, his children. He's going to the church on Sunday. And when he goes on the wild territories of colonialism, he can have a total different life and he can have sex with those savage women. But for women, it's not the same. A white woman is not supposed to have sex with the native. There is this idea that a woman who is having sex with a black man or with an Arab is betraying her community. And it's something that is very scandalous and very subversive. And my own grandmother told me how humiliated she was and how much she was a victim of, of violence and of racism because of, uh, of this situation. So, yes, it's, it's very much about sex. And um, as you said, you talk about Franz Fanon, and I read Franz Fanon a lot while I was writing the, <laughs> the trilogy. And uh, he's one of my main inspiration. And uh, I, I write a lot about bodies. Uh, my, I think that my writing is very physical. I like to write about the, the body of my, my characters because I think that colonialism and humiliation is also something that uh, leaves stigmas on your, on your body. It's not something that is abstract. 
it's like racism. You know, when you explain to someone how it is to be victim of racism, it's not an abstraction. It's not an idea. When you are in the street and someone is looking at you and you feel your skin, you feel your hair, you feel the way you are, your body in a very different way. So it's very physical. I imagine that that your grandmother, she's a fictitious character, Matilda, I know, but I think of her as your your, your grandmother. And maybe I should, that it must have been at the time in the 1940s coming as a French woman from Alsace and marrying an Arab man and coming to, to Morocco. I, I think you had a lot of people in the 60s where it was more like a hippie thing or a revolutionary thing going from from the metropole to, to the colonies, but it must have been very, very unusual for her at the time as a, yeah, as a French woman marrying an Arab man and going to Morocco. What were her dreams, Matilda, in the book, not your grandmother? Yeah, uh, in that sense, Matilda and my grandmother are very similar. I think that the, the dreams of, uh, of Matilda is, uh, as I said before, this uh, mythic dream of uh, colonialism. Uh, she read a lot of novels. She's very uh, influenced by books she read about Morocco, about Africa. So I suppose that uh, she imagined she will arrive in a very beautiful, like colored country where she will uh, have the power to dominate a lot of people because she will be white. And she, I, I'm sure she thinks that she will arrive in a very beautiful and big farm and um, she will have many people working for her and she will drink cocktail on the on the terrace. I think she has a dream like in uh, in Karen Blixen book in the African farm. It's a little bit the idea, but when she arrives in Morocco, there is no Robert Redford and <laughs> no cocktails <laughs> in the in the farm. There is nothing. But what I like with her is that she understands that she's going to be rejected by the community of the uh, of the colonialists. So she decides very quickly to be to become a Moroccan or at least to un to learn Arabic and to learn how to live in this country, to learn about the tradition, about the religion, about the way of life. And that's something that I admire very much um, in, in Mathilde and also in my grandmother. That's something I've always loved in the character of my, in the personality of my grandmother, that she was absolutely with no racism, no despise against uh, anyone. And when she arrived and she was like 20, immediately she decided to, to read and write in Arabic and to understand as, as much as she could uh, this, this country. She had a lot of respect for foreign cultures, I think. There's a letter that she writes to her sister, Irene, who, who's back in French. And it's absolutely heartbreaking because it's all lies that she she wants to show her what a wonderful life she has. And it's kind of a contrast to the life that she really has in, in Morocco. I think that's where she also says that she imagines the book by Pearl S. Buck and Karen Blixen. Uh, and it's absolutely heartbreaking because this exposes the distance between her dreams of going there and the life that she she lives, because to a certain extent, she becomes a kind of an outcast, or she's not she's socializing with with this uh, Hungarian exile doctor and a barbarian uh, uh, as well. Why why is it that she does everything? She even opens a clinic. She learns the language. Why is it that she doesn't seem to belong anyway? First about the, the letter, what is interesting, I think, is that this kind of lie or this kind of, of letter could 
completely be written today by, uh, I don't know, a Moroccan guy arriving to Copenhagen or to Paris. And he would write to his mother and say, oh, you know, everything is okay and I'm earning money and my life is beautiful. But the truth is he's living in the street and he has no money and he's probably victim of racism. I think that is something very common to those who immigrate. There is uh, some people expect so much from, from you and they expect you to succeed. They expect you to send money. They expect you to send a letter to say that everything is okay. So you will be the pride of the family. And that's something that I find very moving. This idea that you're, you'd rather lie than, yes, than facing the humiliation of, of saying that it's not working and that it's not as beautiful and as easy as you imagined it. And um, and then what was the rest of the question? Sorry, it, it was why why doesn't she fit in? You know, she I think she ah. does. You know, I think she, you know, she must have been brought up with the colonized worldview and have, that that the Arabs are lesser human beings, and so and so. I'm very impressed by the way she transcends that and she learns Arab and she does take care of a lot of things, but still she seems like a social outcast. Yeah, but I think that it has to, to do with the fact that she's a woman. And for women living uh, in a farm like that, it was very, very difficult to have um, the, the possibility to socialize with, with other people. For men, it was very different. A man could go outside and go on a cafe, on a bar. He would have, to have his friend and go have a drink. For women, it was much more difficult. You were supposed to live in the house with the women of your family. You were not supposed to go outside. And that's something that she wants. She always say, I want to go to the cinema. I want to go to a party. I want to, to have friends. And um, that's also something that I want to show in the in the trilogy. And that's why my, my main characters are all women. The fact that one of the main tools and the most powerful tool of, of patriarchy, of patriarchy, is the fact that it makes impossible solidarity between women. It it makes it very difficult for women to bring a sense of of solidarity. Uh, I remember that my grandmother told me that she always suffered very much of the fact that when she was uh, when she was young, women would always say to one another, especially her mother or her aunt, "Don't go uh, outside wearing that. Don't get pregnant." Don't Don't speak to this man. There was always this kind of, um, you know, um, méfiance. I don't know how to say. So I think it has to to do with that. The fact that for women sociability was much more difficult than for women today. I think that we uh, women today we don't imagine how difficult it was for uh, the the women of those generation to yeah to fight against solitude. The husband that she met, she met at this handsome officer in France. That's where she met and, and they married. And, and he has this dream. He's a, for me, he's a very, very interesting character because he's a farmer, but he has this idea of the modern farming techniques and, and the way he wants to cultivate it. He's almost like a student, actually, actually of, of a student on his own of, of agriculture. He's also a very, very ambivalent character, very shameful And and humiliated and, and he doesn't always treat Matilda uh, well. What, what were Amina's dreams? 
Yeah, as you said, he's a very complex character. And what I like very much in this, I mean, his personality is, as you said, the fact that he believes in progress. He believes in science. He believes in uh, in reason. And he wants to, um, to share that with the people who are working with him in the farm. You have to imagine that when the French arrived in Morocco at the beginning of the 19th century, Morocco was... Uh, quite a feudal country. You had at that time a lot of uh, famine, people were starving. Um, the, the agriculture was very, very poor. People uh, were really fighting just to have enough to, to eat and to give uh, to eat to, to their children. So he wants to fight against that, against what he calls the arriération, the underdevelopment of, of his country. He's ashamed by that. And he believes that in, in knowledge, in, in fight for for having uh, a better condition and a better life so that's something that I like he's um, he's someone who is really revolted by injustice by poverty and uh, he doesn't want to live like his parents or his ancestors he he believes in a new life and he's fascinated by California and by all this modern world with a, a new agriculture that could, could give food to everyone so he's an idealist in a certain way he's a he, he has a certain sense of utopia and at the same time he's a very dark and very sometimes very violent man but I think that it has to do with the fact that he's a man who went to war uh, when he was 19. He was very young. He went to war in a country that he didn't know, that he had never been in. And, you know, the colonial uh, army, especially the Senegalese and the Moroccan, they were the first in the front line. They were the first to, to die because, of course, no one did care about black people and Arab people. And they suffered a lot. And my my grandfather, like I mean, was imprisoned in a in a in a camp in Germany for one year and a half. So I think that Amin is a man who is absolutely traumatized by the the violence and the cruelty he uh, he experienced. But those times were very different from today. He comes back to his country, and no one will tell him, "Okay, you have to go to a psychiatrist, and you should speak about your experience." No one cares. You have to go back to work, and uh, you marry, you have children. So I think that those people, they, yeah, they kept a lot of <coughs> of traumas inside the, inside them. So maybe that's something that explains his attitude and also the fact that he's very much humiliated by the colonialists. And as Franz Fanon said, the thing is that when men are humiliated by the colonialists and they have no power, they can't dominate anyone but their wife. When they go back to, to the house, they want to show that, okay, outside I'm humiliated, outside I'm dominated, but here I am the chief. Here I'm the one who decides. Here I'm the one who's going to dominate. So Fanon said, and I think that he's right, that there is here an explanation to the, the terrible violence against women at, the, at that time and in those countries. And also this, because I was thinking of that in Fanon when I read your book, also this, that when you are humiliated by others, you humiliate yourself, that that the, the bully becomes a, a bully. And that also, I wouldn't say it explains it totally, but it makes it more easy to understand this tension between the liberation of women and the and the, the national struggles for, for independence. But Amin, I think, is also in a very tough spot because he was fighting for the French army in the Second World War. 
And I think he was not recognized. You know, he was an officer and he was good. He, he could be used in the army. But afterwards, he, he probably wasn't. He probably wasn't recognized as much as, as the white French people were. And coming back to Morocco, some at least, like his brother, who's a nationalist, would see him as a traitor. So he's just also kind of caught between these mixed identities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's why his reaction is to say, okay, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I, I don't care about politics. I don't want to give my opinion. I just care about one thing. It's the farm. I just care about my, my work and my family. And I like this idea of those two characters, Amin and Mathilde, who are going to live in this farm like in, a, in an island. And they want, in a certain way, to disconnect themselves from what is happening uh, around them. And that's also a question that I'm going to ask in the, in the trilogy, in the whole trilogy. And I think that's a very actual question is, do we have the right not to get involved? Do we have the right even not to care? Do we have the right when there is a riot, a fight for independence or a war, just to care about love or to care about writing poems? So that's something I want to, to question. The fact that, yes, they decide to live on this island and because they understand that they will always be considered as traitor and they will always suffer from what people think, they prefer not to look at what is happening around. When you read it, you think these are very unique identities, but then stepping back and you think of, there must have been a lot of Moroccans who had different relations with, with France. And, you know, many of the nationalists were educated in French universities, came back and turned French universality against French colonialism. So this conflict that, that Amin has that, he doesn't want to fight the nationalist independence war because he doesn't want to fight against his friends and his own wife and, and his family. How, how common do you think these ambiguities were? You know, I think that it's the, the rule in every civil war or all those kinds of war, the war with people that you have lived with for, for years. And sometimes you have even married one or sometimes one is your best friend and one is your neighbor. And um, that is something that we always forget when we speak about colonialism or uh, about, about wars in, in general, is that uh, <clears throat> you have individuals and those individuals, they know each other. There is a very beautiful full sentence about uh, Paul Valéry saying war is when people who don't know themselves uh, fight for people who know themselves, you know, the people uh, up who know themselves very well. And that's something very cruel, but something also very true. So, um, yeah, I think that it's the, the rule of every war. How much, because I was, of course, uh, thinking of your book when I was watching what's happening in Ukraine. And we could see these characters, of course, Amin's brother is a nationalist. He's all a nationalist, but, but many of the people are ambivalent. And then I was hearing those interviews with people in Ukraine who used to speak Russian to their own parents and who had family in, 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 in Russia. How do you see this parallel between these Ukrainians that are now supposed to be all in Ukrainians and against Russia? Yeah, you know, in um, in French newspaper, we see a lot of uh, testimonies from people who are from the same family who have like a mother who is Ukrainian and a father who is Russian. And you see the the journalist, the Russian journalist who who made this um, 
this uh, statement on, on, on TV against, against war. Then she explained that she is half Ukrainian, half Russian. And that's very interesting because she was so angry and she was saying, but you know, my parents, they love themselves. They don't make war. I don't understand. We are brothers. I don't understand. And I thought it was very moving and very interesting to see that coming from her intimacy, a very intimate question, she understood that she had to fight against this power and this regime, even though she worked for this regime for 10 years. So sometimes it's because of a very intimate situation that you get conscious of a, of, yeah, of a political view or a political statement. How does, does this, because then then the war shapes the next generation's identities. We were the ones who fought, and we all know that those who fought for freedom, also the resistance fighters here in Denmark, they were the heroes of the next the, the next generation. But I think in Morocco, it must have been different because Moroccans, you know it better than I do, of course, but we're not entirely against uh, France, but they, they were, it was not like an anti-French nationalist movement. They were kind of, in my perspective, kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very different, for instance, from Algeria. Yes. Uh, with Algeria, that was for for years, and it's uh, still the case today. Uh, the the heroes of the resistance, the Mujahideen, uh, who fought against France, and there is also a real hatred uh, against France and French culture. In Morocco, it was very different, and that's exactly what I'm. Um, telling uh, in, in uh, Regardez nous danser in the second part, this idea that uh, at the end, yeah, French people left, colonialism ceased, but there was this idea that, okay, but we are co going to continue to, to speak together and, to, and our economy will be very close and you're going to help us. And, you know, yes, colonialism, it was not very good, but we forgive you. And uh, the truth is also that the French, uh, the Moroccan bourgeoisie, the Moroccan elite was very close to the French people. And when they left, they reproduced exactly the same model as the colonial uh, model. And at that time, we used to call them the neo-colon, the new colonialist, the, the Moroccan bourgeoisie. So it's very different. And I would say that maybe the main characters of the, this trilogy is this couple, Morocco and France. This couple, they, they meet, they live together, they split, but they stay in love and sometimes they fight. And that's this story that I want to, to tell. And in a way, uh, I want to, to tell to Moroccan people, but also to French people that you can do whatever you want. Now our destinies are linked forever because so many families, so many love stories, so many businesses, so many things happen between the two countries. So this is a very strong and very complex story, a love and hate story sometimes. You know, Franz Fanon also warned against uh, the anti-colonial struggles that would liberate themselves 100% from, from the metropole, uh, from the old colonial power, saying that if we do that, we give the continent back to our worst enemy, our own stupidity. And that is, I mean, uh, as a white person, I can't even say, I feel bad, I feel bad saying it, but that's a very, very tough way of putting it, that if we just push everything we learned out, then we are going 150 years back in, in time. So what is from that, that perspective the good way of inheriting that, that colonized uh, culture? 
But you're you're absolutely right, and you know, even for me, who is not a white man, uh, if I said that in front of some conservatives in in Morocco, or if I said that in France, in front of uh, um, you know woke uh, movement, or I don't know how to to call them, they are going to say, "Wow, well, you're a native informant. You uh, you are obsessed with the West and too much influence with the West." But it's for me, and sorry to say it like that, but for me, it's completely bullshit. And and I think that the the fact that uh, in Algeria and in so many countries now the the powers are, and the, the elite and the governance use the hatred against West to yeah to oppress people they, that's the only thing they have to say in many countries in Africa in many countries in in Maghreb all they have to say is ah all is that is because of the West all that is because of colonialism we have to fight against them but it's not true it's because of them it's because they they lack of intelligence and of uh, honesty and of everything and um, I think that we have to keep what is good for us we have to yeah as a Kateb Yassin, the, 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 the Algerian poet, he said that French language, for, for instance, was a butin de guerre. I don't know how to say butin in, in, in English, but the idea is that's something that you, that you gained from, from the war. So we keep the good things. And um, what matters is to have a better life. The, what matters is to live in dignity. What matters is to be more free and to have more equality. And, but that demands intelligence and lucidity. And the problem is that the people who came after colonialism in many African countries were only interested in, in money and in power. And they used the the the. the the hatred against the, the West to do nothing. And even if, of course, we have to speak about that, about colonialism, and we have to speak about all the suffering and all the humiliation, but we should also look uh, to the future and stop living always in the past. Did you hear the speech by the Kenyan UN ambassador in the General Assembly? They're responding to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the ambassador from Kenya said, well, in Africa, all our borders, they were drawn on the map. They were not based on our peoples or our tribes. And we could keep fighting. We could keep saying, well, we want to get our old people back. We want to be the ones that we, we want to be the old tribes. We don't accept borders that are drawn in Lisbon, Paris, and, and, and London, the old metropolitan um, cities. We could say that, but then we would be fighting forever. That was, a, I think it was a beautiful criticism of Putin, but of, of, uh, of tribalism in, in Africa as well. He said, we have chosen to accept the borders that we inherited, not because they are the right ones, but because they are the borders. And then we look ahead. And because we want to live, and I think that the new generations, my generation, uh, we don't want to be the hostage of that. We are really tired of speaking of, of this conversation all the time. And we are also tired of uh, being forced uh, to hate someone or to have this enemy. I think that we have better things to, to do. And sometimes we have to clean up in our own countries before hating people outside. Yeah, and, and there's a risk of an alliance between, you know, conservatives in former colonized countries and very left wing in, in, in the Western country. There's another aspect which is in your book and which is in your other books as well, which is 
this intersection between um, between race and class that that Amin and Matilda are different, come from different countries, they have different colors, their children are are mixed out of that, and you are a product of that uh, of that yourself. But then there's also the question of social class. How do these two uh, dimension? Uh, yeah, how, how do you see them together in your book? Yeah, it makes all the difference. I think that for every topic and for everything, class is always the answer. I have a very Marxist way of explaining or understanding things. For instance, you know, for sexuality, I'm I fight in Morocco for sexual rights. And uh, it's very interesting to see that um, in Morocco, sexual intercourse outside marriages is forbidden. You can go to, to prison. So as adultery and homosexuality and abortion. But the truth is, when you're rich and you have a car and you have a house and you live in the nice neighborhood of Rabat or Casablanca, you have exactly the same life as someone who lives in Paris or who lives in, in London. And even worse, the fact that having the intercourse is illegal makes you make no difference between having sex with them um, for those people having sex with a woman who is 14 or rape or being a rapist or doing things that are really wrong because what you're doing is illegal anyway so those people when they have money they can do anything but people who are poor for them it's very different for them uh, that a woman who is poor is going to be more likely a victim of of rape or sexual assault of uh, she will be pregnant without wanting a, a child she will try to get an abortion in terrible and tragic condition so i think yeah that class is always at the end the thing that we have to look at that's the the thing that makes the big difference between human being if you have money or you don't if you're poor or you're rich if you have power or you don't your life is going to be very different and even for women in the book you can see that a woman who is very poor even if women are all dominated but there is a difference between a woman who belongs to the bourgeoisie and a woman who is very poor and the woman who belongs to the bourgeoisie is going to dominate the the other woman so i wanted to show that we should not be naive we don't only belong to one group women or french or that at the end the thing that is the most important for me is social class there is a point that is very often seen in Orhan Pamuk's books, which is that, you know, after Atatürk, then the next uh, elite, uh, the next upper class, they were very liberal and they, uh, they took over liberal values. And that was kind of a prestigious thing. We are the liberal educators and we want to get rid of all your rural ha habits and all your stupid religion. We want uh, enlightenment. And it's always in, in Pamuk's books about Turkey that that the way that Erdogan and the traditionalism came back was kind of a class struggle that they were driving because the upper classes were westernized. They were driving that that out. How much I'm looking very much forward to reading your next tomb, because in Morocco, the I think after liberation, the next elite was also closely connected. Yeah, absolutely. To the 
but they represented maybe 5% of the population. I'm always very amused when people show me pictures from Casablanca in the 60s with a woman with a mini skirt and saying, oh, wow, it was so great at that time. And I'm like, okay, but what you see is not representative of Moroccan people because at that time, an 80, 85 or 89% of women were uh, working in the fields in the countryside and couldn't read or write. And people were poor. People were very, very poor. And that's something um, I, I resented from France is that when France arrived with their colonialism, they said, we come here to give you enlightenment. But it's, it was a total lie. When they left from Morocco, there was only 20 Moroccan doctors, there were none lawyers, and six dentists. No, they didn't go to school. Moroccan people couldn't go to school. When they left, like 80% of the Moroccan population couldn't read or write. So as you, you can imagine that in 1956, you have to educate a whole country. And uh, there is no emancipation, there is no enlightenment, there is no liberal view of the world. If you have no education, if you have no education and you have nothing to eat, and uh, you live in a, you live in the countryside in very hard uh, difficult condition so sometimes i'm very uh, very angry against those uh, you know liberal elites in casablanca who say oh my god those people those conservative people they are so stupid and i despise them but you don't have the same life you don't live what they live and the, the horror and the, the tragedy of, of being poor, of being humiliated, of being uneducated. So, yeah, I think that um, uh, they are also a little bit guilty of, of the situation. And it's very easy to be liberal when you have enough to, to eat and uh, when you have a place to, to sleep. <laughs> there are so many more questions I would like to ask you, but time is running out and I have just one, one question left, which I think is very important which is that that when I look at countries like Morocco, it seems that Morocco went through a modernization that took maybe one and a half century here in Denmark. And they went through that in maybe 30 years or 50 years. So looking at the characters in your three generations, it's like they've seen world history un unfolding. In this first tomb of, of your book, you have the 50s, uh, 50s popular culture coming in. And that's almost like being in New York. And then you have this countryside. What do you think this very, very rapid modernization has meant for Morocco? That's exactly what I'm trying to explore with the trilogy. That's why I wanted to write three books, because I think that it's amazing to see how fast and how brutally also the, the Morocco evolved. If you compare the destiny of my grandmother to my destiny, there is so much difference. We don't even have the same rights. We don't have the same way of life. We don't have anything in, in common in, in many ways. So that's exactly what I'm trying to, to figure out. But I, I can't answer right now. I will tell you at the end of the of the third part. But now uh, I don't know yet. And I think because I would say, I think that also explains the moral control that you want over the females' bodies, that this is a way of controlling a new order that you're very, very frightened of. So I think that's part of it too. Laila Slimani, it was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you so for much. your book. And I look very much forward to reading your next tune. Have a good Thank evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Det var så min samtale med Laila Slimani. Som sagt, da hendes roman 
De Andres Land, udkommet på forlaget Gyllendal, og den kan stærkt anbefales. I næste uge skal jeg tale med den britiske forsker Helen Thompson. Hun har skrevet en bog, der hedder Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Og Helen Thompson er en af dem, der har skrevet en bog, der giver hele konteksten for den krig, vi står i nu. Hun har nemlig undersøgt de sidste 70 års politik i Vesten med udgangspunkt i energipolitik som en kamp om energiresourcerne. Og krigen i Ukraine handler ikke om olie og gas, men olie og gas er hele konteksten for den. Så hvis man forstår konteksten for den krig, vi er i nu, og også forstå, hvordan vi kommer videre derfra på en måde, så vi også forlader de beskidte brændstoffer og kommer over til en rigtig grøn omstilling, så er det en rigtig god idé at læse Helen Thomsens bog. Man kan for eksempel starte med at lytte med i næste uge. Den her samtale var produceret af Dagbladet Information og min meget gode ven og hjælper, Anne Pilgaard Petersen, som igen har fået det hele til at hænge sammen, selvom jeg indimellem har talt usammenhængende og ofte alt for højt. Tusind tak til Anne. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.